So let's dive into this week's question. The question for week two is how can a God of mercy condemn people to hell? How can a God of mercy condemn people to hell? One of the most troubling aspects um, for those people who are outside of Christianity, and even, let's be honest, can we be honest in the room as Christians? One of the most troubling aspects for even Christians, and something that we wrestle with from time to time, is what do we do with this doctrine? What do we do with what we believe about hell? can be quite troubling because the question suggests, how can a God of mercy condemn people to hell? This seems to go in the opposite direction of Christianity, right? There's this dichotomy that exists that says uh, God is loving, and for God to be loving and condemn people to hell seems to be the opposite character of a God who is loving. Christians acknowledge this. Christians have sought to answer this particular question. And uh, frankly, to be honest with you, we've given all kinds of different answers. So tonight, what I'm going to try and do is give you what the Bible says and not give you what humans would say. But I do think it's worth noting there are voices that speak to you that would tell you, um, such like Rob Bell that would suggest that in the end, love wins, that everyone comes to know Christ. That was more of a a generation ago uh, when I was uh, in college. But even now, we live in an era where Um, You can get on Netflix tonight when you go home and you can watch a movie that Netflix backed, paid for itself, called Come Sunday. It's about a pastor, Carlson Peterson, from the Tulsa area, who is a universalist and believes that in the end, everybody's already saved, so it doesn't really matter. You can watch as he goes from uh, being a prominent uh, Pentecostal pastor to being someone who believes that in the end, Everyone goes to heaven and everybody's already saved. So even now we have access to these things. So it becomes confusing to answer this particular question. So what I want to do tonight in four uh, steps, points, movements, if you will, is to answer this particular question. So if we're going to be honest and we're going to answer, how can a God of mercy contempt people to hell? We first have to deal with something called presuppositions. There are some presuppositions that are made in the particular question of how can a loving God condemn people to hell? One of these presuppositions is this idea. Western Christians, and really Westerners in general, can get behind the idea of a loving God. We can get behind this idea of a loving God. Furthermore, Westerners, Americans in general, can get through the idea, get behind the idea of forgiving people, being kind to your enemies, doing good things. We can get behind that. Nobody really objects to that idea. The problem, though, is that we elevate a loving God and we have a hard time with people who are judgmental. That's a very Western idea. You say, what do you mean Western idea? Well, contrary to popular belief, the United States isn't the only country that has people that think in it. And sometimes people outside the United States would say, 
not contrary to popular opinion that Westerners or Americans are the only people that think, we're not even sure sometimes that Western Americans think. When you go to our neighbors north of us, even our neighbors south of us, they're not even sure that we're thinking. But Westerners really love the question, how can a God of mercy or how can a loving God condemn people to hell? You see, here's the problem. Other cultures see the idea of a forgiving God as actually not a strength of Christianity, but actually a weakness of it. You go into cultures and societies where they place a high view on justice and a low view on forgiveness, and their problems are exactly the opposite. So we have to ask the question, at what point in time did Western thinking, specifically Western American thinking, get to become the judge for whether or not Christianity is true or not. I don't think the rest of the world would be okay with us saying that our way of thinking is the only way of thinking. And furthermore, I would actually argue on this idea of presuppositions that it's actually a point of favor in the idea of Christianity that in our culture, people are offended by the idea of a judgmental God. And in another culture, they're offended by the idea of a loving God. You say, why would that be a point of favor? Because Christianity is an equal opportunity offender. You're like, that does not, you're not convincing me that this is a good thing that Christianity would offend people in one culture and then offend people in another culture. You should be proud of any worldview that offends people everywhere. In this sense, if it's equally offensive for Easterners and it's equally offensive for Westerners, yet Easterners and Westerners eventually overcome their particular problems with Christianity and believe that it's true, it means that it's bigger than just one worldview. It means that Christianity can exist in other cultures other than just America. Because, right, we would, we would denounce any type of worldview that couldn't exist outside of its own particular bubble. We do this all the time. Yeah, it may pop out in different places, but every time it's quashed, it never expands. It only shrinks. So here's the presupposition. The presupposition is a lot of times our Western way of thinking allows us to ask questions that aren't necessarily invalid, but expose that we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of other people. But furthermore, and this is where we really get into the meat of the argument, this first point is not very long. Further, this question actually gives us, secondly, uh, some misconceptions about who God is. So if we're going to talk about how can a loving God send people to hell? We're actually going to have to talk about the character and the makeup and who God is. We understand that God is love. And one thing that Christians can agree on is that the Bible talks about how God loves the world and loves humanity. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. So if you, you can flip over and read it, or I'll read it for you. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 8. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the only, so God, 
Ugh, sorry. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can all get behind that. Everybody has seen NFL football games where the random guy is sitting in the end zone blocking three other people as he holds up that really big plastered board that says John 3.16. Got to wonder what's going on with the, the guys to his right and left. Hopefully they know Jesus. So it's got to be awkward if they don't. And then he's just like, hey, here and here. Okay, everybody here. We're real big into this. We understand that God is love and that God exists for love and that he loves all people. Everybody would agree with that particular statement. The problem with that is that it actually gives us a misconception about God. We define God by something that is part of who he is. And we don't understand God in his totality. You say, what are you talking about? Well, in the same book, 1 John, that tells us that God is love, 1 John 1, 5 also tells us this. This is the message which we have heard from him, speaking of God, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the problem with asserting or elevating the idea about God that he is love, is that that diminishes all of the other attributes that make up who God is. Why is that problematic? Glad you asked the question. Augustine said this, if you worship God based on the attributes or characteristics that you like about God, in the end, it's not God that you worship, but yourself. So from the very beginning, the question presupposes, again, that God is primarily love, but that diminishes everything else that we know about him that he is holy, that he is just, that he is righteous. The Bible tells us all of these things explicitly about the character and makeup of God. And just when we consider this thought, I want you to think about this for a minute. We live in a culture, 2018 is a weird year. It's a weird time, but it's not weird in this sense. To diminish any part of a human being brings ultimate outrage in our society. You say, how so? Consider a woman in our society who does multiple things, i.e. she is a mom, she works, and she is a wife. If in our society, if you were to elevate one of those particular roles above the other, man, there's a lot of firestorm that comes with this. She's a working woman. She's empowered. Well, she's also, I'm, don't define me by one thing. Nobody wants to be defined by one thing about them. Even in this room, another perfect illustration of this is no one wants to be defined by the job they have in college. No one for the rest of their life wants to be defined by the job that they had in college. Unless you're like the weird kid and you're Mark Zuckerberg and you founded Facebook, nobody wants to be defined by the job they had in college. I do not want to be introduced for the rest of my life as, and we have with us tonight a special guest speaker, 
David Botts, um, his most notable accomplishment up to this point is he spent four years as a call center rep at Bass Pro Shops. Like, seriously, I've done a lot of other stuff since then. I've done some significant things since then. Mainly, I got another job. Not that working at Bass Pro is a bad thing. But nobody wants to be, I, or even worse, your high school job. Here we have with us tonight, David Botts, who's going to come and speak to us. What you probably uh, would love to know about him is that from the ages of 16 to 18, he parked golf carts at a golf course. You're like, doesn't seem like that's what should qualify him to speak on certain topics. You wouldn't want the guys that are running NASA to be introduced as, and this guy was a fry cook in college. Deep outer space exploration, fry cook, seems to be a good correlation. But yet we do this with God. We elevate the attribute that we find most appealing to ourselves to the top, and we ask questions like, how can a loving God condemn people to hell? And we diminish all the other makeup and all the other characteristics and all the other components about who God is at the risk of elevating this one idea. But still, you're like, okay, I have a presupposition, I have a misconception about God, but you still have the problem of humanity is a mess, who is this hell? How do we deal with this? This is where I want to spend the bulk of our time tonight, dealing with this particular problem, the misconceptions we have about the misconceptions we have about humanity. If you have your copy of God's word in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, if this is your first time with us and you've never had one, there should be one in front of you on the chair underneath in front of you. You can pull that out. That's our gift to you. You can take it home, read it. Uh, we would love for you to ask questions. Genesis chapter 3 is right at the beginning. So you've got this problem with humanity, a misconception actually. There's misconceptions about humanity in this respect. We really honestly, the reason why this question comes up is because we don't understand God, but even more importantly, we don't understand ourselves. It's not just that we don't understand who God is, it's we don't understand who we are. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. I'm going to say, David, you read this last week. Yes, because I think this passage is going to be a seminal passage a monumental passage in understanding last week's question and this week's question. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God said we would. Then the serpent says we won't. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they were and they knew that they were naked and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Here in the verse, first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3, what we learn is that in one act of open rebellion, sin enters into the world. And that sin mars the image of God, 
but it also affects every single person who will ever be born or has lived prior to us. See, the Bible argues that since sin has entered in the world, the world is actually headed into a downward spiral. I can't remember if I said it last week or if I've, I know I've said it before, but I never met anyone in the last 28 years that I've been alive that's arguing that the world is becoming a better place. The, the fact that sin has entered in the world is not only a verifiable fact according to Genesis chapter 3, but it's a verifiable fact in the, in the sense that you walk into the world and you don't have to be convinced that the world is a very bad place, that it's a very dark place, that it's covered and run by and immersed in sin. Yeah, well, I don't really think it's that bad. Okay. In the last six weeks, we've learned that at bare minimum, certain people within inside the Roman Catholic Church knew that children were being molested. And there are accusations that it went all the way up to the top of the Roman Catholic Church. In a matter of hours or days, because the world is progressively getting worse and this world is broken, a storm is getting ready to slam into our country. I don't really have to argue that hard to come up with evidences of how our world is broken. You can probably give them to me today. You could give them to me in the fact that some of you were cut off by people who care more about themselves than they do about the people around them when you were driving today. Some of you may be on your way to church. Isn't that frustrating? You're on your way to church and somebody cuts you off. You feel like in that moment... You want to be angry, but you know you're about to go worship God, and you're like, don't really know how to process that. We live in a world that is cursed and marred and, at some level, destroyed by sin. But it's so much more than just sin is doing stuff to the world and to us in general. Sin does something far greater than that. It separates us from God. And a lot of times we focus on the fall, and everybody's talking about, well, it's a woman's fault, and maybe it's a man's fault, and we're not really sure. And we're talking about the curses, and now she's going to be have pain during childbirth, and he's going to have to work hard at the ground. And it, we're, we're obsessed with those things, or we see those things, and we run to that. But there's something that's communicated in Genesis chapter 3 that should send shivers down our spine. If you're a Christian, if you're a skeptic in the room, this is why sin is so bad. And that's found later in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. You say, that's so bad, so far. Verse 22 is where it gets really bad. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a 
flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what Genesis chapter 3 tells us. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the greatest event in human history is the fall of humanity coupled with the separation from God. Here's the fourth one. Sin separates humanity from God. Prior to sin entering the world, Adam and Eve experienced intimate fellowship with God. And from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the Bible, the Bible speaks about what is taking place to restore that broken human relationship. Now, probably an objection or two at this point. One that comes to mind is, if I had been there, this would have turned out better. Because we always have more pride in ourselves than we do what's reality. People say, it's not fair, I wasn't there. How can one person's sin affect all the rest of humanity? The answer is twofold. One, if you had been there, you would have done the wrong thing. Guys will say, if I would have been there, wouldn't have beaten, women would have been sinful, men would have been perfect. No, it's not how that works. Girls are like, well, if I would have been there, I would have told him we were walking away. That's not how that works either. Second response to that objection is we live in a world that's constantly aware of the fact that when one person does something, everybody gets punished. We live in this world where that happens. We play sports in this world. A person commits a foul, the whole team is penalized. We don't object to it there. We don't object to, some of you got punished as kids because of something stupid your brother or sister did. And in that moment, you're like, what is this person here for? If all they're going to do is get me into trouble, why are they even here? So you live in a world that understands and has the conception of one person commits sin, everyone else But there's actually more objections, I think, to this idea. Because here's my central answer to the question. I'll play my card out on the table. How can a loving God condemn people to hell? The answer, I think, from Christians who believe the Bible would be, God condemns no person to hell. Their sin sentence them to hell. So the bigger question is not how can a loving God condemn people to hell? It's how can sinful people who are headed to hell avoid going the opposite direction? You may still have objections, and I think that they're valid, and I want to address them before I come to a resolution. Two objections that still remain. One is fairly common. Actually, I think both are fairly common, but the first one is becoming more common. The idea is this. Christians are the worst of all people because if they legitimately believe that other people are headed to hell and they're headed to heaven because they trusted in Christ, 
isn't that going to make them treat people poorly? This is a legitimate argument against Christianity. Because we live in a world that when people think that they're superior to other people, they don't go out of their way to help them. They actually go out of their way to marginalize them and say, well, then what's the answer to that question? Well, the answer to the objection is that Christians actually don't believe that they're better than other people. If I can be completely honest with you, I don't even think that I'm better than you. In fact, some of the time I think that you might be better than me. Because what Christianity does is it exposes the amount of sinfulness that is contained in the human heart. And when that sinfulness is exposed, you actually find out that you're not better than other people. You actually are worse than other people. Because I'm forced to think in my brain, I wonder if other people are thinking these terrible thoughts as people cut them off in traffic. Or when people are unkind or rude, or mean, or hurtful, or say ugly things. And you don't say what you should say, but you definitely think it. And in those moments, I'm wondering, hmm, there is a lot of sin here. But if we continue to answer this objection, the reason beyond why not only do we believe we're not better than people, but it's only when you understand that a God who will write everything in the end exists and is a supreme authority that you don't pick up the sword and go back for revenge. It's when people groups and organizations lose their understanding that there is a moral authority that is supreme over everything that people begin to be brutalized. You say, how can you prove that? I'll give you two examples and then I'll move on to our other objection. The two examples are this. Nazism and communism. Both deny the existence of God. One only needs to read the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to know that Nazism oppressed the German national church and oppressed Christians in general. Let alone the other horrific crimes they do against humanity. When you deny the existence of a supreme moral authority, you begin to brutally kill, maim, and Communism has done the exact same thing. You say, David, you can't prove that. I think that communism, or at least socialism, is a great idea. The problem with that is what's taking place in China right now. If you don't believe in a supreme moral authority, you don't have anyone to answer to. So when you murder Christians and burn Bibles, you don't have anyone to answer to. The second objection is this, David, because it's going to come up in the Q&A, and we'll deal with it more in the Q&A if you want, because we still have this much. What about those people who never hear? What about innocent people? What, what do we do with them? This is great. We're all sitting in here, but what about that person who exists in a faraway land that doesn't know any of this stuff? The answer to that is actually found in the book of Romans. If you would, flip over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. This is a key objection that we must deal with when we're talking about the idea of people going to hell. You 
might say, well, yeah, we, okay, I understand rightly that sin entered into the world. I understand rightly that it affects all people. But what about that guy, always a guy living in some deep, dark jungle? There's never anybody living in a deep, dark, cold place. But a deep, dark jungle, what happens to him? Is he, he should be innocent of being sent to hell. Here's what Romans chapter 1 Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, innately written on your human heart, and my human heart, is that there is a God and that he does exist. But what does humanity do? In its sin, it represses that truth. It tries to scrub and erase it off the heart. The problem is it can't erase it. For since, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They have no excuse because it's written on their heart that God exists. You say, David, how can you tell me that this is written on the human heart? I gave you the illustration last week of Richard Dawkins. He proclaimed out, yelled out to God at some level on a television show. We see this made fun of all the time on stand-up comedy circuits. We see it all the time in this way. People make jokes like this. I met a guy the other day. I asked him what he thought about religion. He said, I'm an atheist. I responded, for real, he said, I swear to God. That joke is cracked all over the world. You say, David, that's a joke. You're making a joke, but just remember, jokes are rooted in truth. And it's this plain, that inside the human heart, everyone screams out that there is a God. And all they're doing is trying to repress that particular idea. You say, David, you brought us on a very, very dark path. This seems very, very dark. This is not like I came to church to be encouraged. Praise God that we're not left here. This is actually where I want to end tonight with a personal question, just like I did last week. See, if we understand that a loving God condemns people to hell, and the answer to that is no, actually a loving God doesn't condemn people to hell, but rather their sin condemns them or sends them to hell, you, you would say, okay, what are my options? What are my options? If a loving if it's not a loving God and it's because of my sinfulness, what are my options? You actually only have one option. And that option is Jesus Christ. So, in the few moments we have remaining, I want to walk you through what the Bible says the hope of all of humanity to deal with the problem of hell. Romans 6.23 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There's not one person sitting in this room. There's not one person that woke up this morning or will go to sleep tonight wherever they are in the world that is righteous. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not only are they not righteous, but there's not one person who woke up this morning. There's not one person who will go to sleep tonight that has not or will not or has ever not committed a sin. And that sin separates them from God. There's a pivot. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as though one man, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. You say, I get it. Everybody sinned. You said there was hope. There is hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 tell us this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Your hope, my hope, the hope of everyone in this room, the hope for all of the human world is this, that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect and sinless life. And sometimes we focus a lot on his death, burial, and resurrection. But notice what Paul says. He says, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus Christ not only went to the cross, not only died and was buried and rose again, but prior to all of that activity, he lived a perfect and sinless life. His active obedience as a person is what sets the stage for the cross to be good news. Your hope tonight is that Christ lived a perfect and sinless life and he goes to the cross on your behalf. Then we read in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the bottom line tonight. Regardless of whether or not you've been in church 100 years or you've been to church since today's year old, the consequences of sin is death. But Jesus offers an escape, not just an escape. Escape is too mild of a word. A rescue for your sinful condition, my sinful condition. You say, how am I rescued? Romans 10, 9 through 13 gives us this answer. If you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No question tonight about whether or not you can be saved. Because the opportunity is open to anyone. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the bottom line. If you're sitting in the room and you're asking this question legitimately, how can a loving God send someone to hell? My answer to you tonight is a loving God doesn't send people to hell. Their sin condemns them to hell. But there is an option to avoid hell. His name is Jesus Christ. And the, the last verse that we read where it says there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. You say, David, why are you reading that? I'm not Jewish. I'm not Greek. 
Apostle Paul was writing in that particular context to communicate this very thought. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not limited to race or ethnicity. Christians believe this. The gospel message, the saving power of Jesus Christ is available to all people regardless of who you are or what you've done. So tonight it doesn't matter if you think you're the worst person in this room. We're all the worst people in this room because in the eyes of a just, holy, righteous God, our sin separates us from him and we need to be made right with him in order to avoid hell. And it's not avoiding, it's escaping because he's rescuing us from it. What's the hope then on the other side? Well, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Furthermore, I am persuaded, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the bottom line tonight. You can know what it means to be rescued from your sin. Because I'm going to suggest this. We talk a lot about how hell is a lake of fire. And it's eternal conscious torment that people will go through that don't accept Christ. Can I just suggest to you tonight that I think that pales in comparison to the fact of being separated from God forever. We focus a lot about the pain of being in eternal conscious torment and a lake of fire, but I think what makes hell even worse than that is the fact that forever you will be separated and have no access to God. God has written on your heart that he exists and he cares about you. He cares about you enough that even though we sin, he's provided a means of rescue, and that's through Jesus Christ. So to close, how can a loving God send or condemn people to hell? The answer is, God does not condemn people to hell. Their sin sends them to hell. But God in his gracious, loving, merciful nature gives us the opportunity to be rescued from hell through Jesus Christ. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, you tonight can know what it means to not be headed, as the Bible says, running toward hell, but running toward God. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.